morning. Today's scripture reading is from Mark 10, verses 32 to 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what, they were going to, what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. You say you want a revolution. We all want to change the world. You say you want a revolution because the world is backwards. There is something broken in it. There is oppression and there is pain. And so you say you want a revolution. You want to change the world. You say you want a revolution because the climate is deteriorating, or maybe it's not. There's things that are happening all around that you can't quite seem to figure out. But what you do know is it seems to be fractured, and it seems to not be working at its best capacity. And so you say you want a revolution. You want to change the world. You say you want a revolution because somehow you recognize that it's not working for you, that there's things that are not happening in your life, and so you need to have a personal revolution. You maybe don't want to change the world, but you're yourself, because I wake up in pain, or I just can't seem to stop that thing that I know is destroying me. I, I need a revolution. I need my world to change. When we look through the biographies of Jesus in the gospel, there's no place within them that someone says Jesus was a revolutionary. It just doesn't happen. It's not a term that is said about him. The, the closest we get is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is praying with, with his apostles, those who he'd gathered around to join him, and, and the men come up to take him into custody, and he looks at them and he says, what, you've come to grab me like a common thief. That's the Greek word there. Some say that that word can also mean a seditioner, someone who's against the government. 
That's about the closest we come. But when we look through the biographies of Jesus and we begin to watch what he does, it becomes very evident there are places that he was doing revolutionary things. Some can look at it and claim him as their own and say, because he did this thing, flipped over the tables in the temple, or the way that he interacted with women, the fact that he touched those who had leprosy, that was seditious. That was opposite. And so some would say this, as Craig Greenfield in his book, Subversive Jesus, said, It seems to me that Jesus was all about turning things upside down. He overturned cultural norms, challenged the authorities, undermined the establishment, and generally shook everything up. He was a troublemaker, a dissident, and a thorn in the side of the establishment. And for those of us who are radicals, for those of us who long to have somebody who kind of sticks it to the man, we're like, yes! Jesus the revolutionary. And we forget about Jesus who grabs a coin and says, give to Caesar what is Caesar. And we're trying to figure out, what is he saying there? What does he mean? Someone once said this, a rebel attempts to change the past. A revolutionary attempts to change the future. But in some ways, this is where Jesus shows that he is far more than a revolutionary. Because he's not worried about changing the future. He's not worried about changing the past. He's not even worried about making the present the best that he can be. Because he is the author of the past, the perfecter of the future, and the one who stands in our pain and misery right now in our present. He doesn't have to change, although because he is present... Things are bound to change. They get moved back into the way they were supposed to be all along. Frank Viola wrote a book about Jesus being a revolutionary. And in it he says this, Jesus Christ brought drastic change to the world, change to humanity's view of God, change to God's view of humankind, change to men's view of women, Our Lord came to bring radical change to the old order of things, replacing it with a new order. He came to bring forth a new covenant, a new kingdom, a new birth, a new race, a new species, a new culture, and a new civilization. And you've heard me say quite a bit that Jesus makes all things new as they always were. What his desire was in God to be about. You say you want a revolution, you want to change the world. And I would say to you that the apostles who were walking with Jesus, part of the reason why they were there is because they wanted to see the world change. Even though the Romans really, really were far off. (laughs) Like It's not like they were there cracking their whips all day long on the Israelite nation. They sort of let them have their religion. They let them have their way. They let them do the things that they wanted to do. Now, they could buckle down at any time, and for sure they were giving them taxation without representation. But it wasn't like they were mean, mad tax taskmasters. Yet there were still those, and some even among Jesus' closest circle, that were zealots. We have Simon the Zealot, who was one of the 12, who could not wait to get the Romans out of this holy nation, even by 
force. And Jesus brings him along. So we know that within that 12, there were men who were standing there waiting for the revolution to happen. They could not wait for Jesus to ascend to the throne, to kick out the Romans, and to take it over as it should be, with Israel, the holy nation, around it all. And so as they're walking along with them in their heart, they know Jesus someday is going to make this happen. Some would dare say that Judas just got tired of waiting, and so he wanted to force Jesus' hand. And that's the reason why he betrayed him. So he can make this revolutionary who maybe didn't recognize that he's so revolutionary step up and do the thing that he was supposed to do. The problem with revolutions is this. When we look at revolutions, we begin to see that often they are attached to a cause. There's something that we see that's a wrong that needs to be righted. There's something that needs to be redone and made new. And so we focus on that cause and we rally around that cause so that we can change it. And there are those who are leading in that revolution. Some have said, though, this, that power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so even in the midst of righteous revolution, things that do need to be changed, causes that do need to be lifted up and said, we have to change what is happening here. Even in that, there are leaders who will rise to the top, they will begin to gain power, and they will think to themselves, now that I got you to do this, let's go do this other thing I want you to do. How do we know that? Well, Mark helps us know that. We find out that Jesus is more than a revolutionary in the fact that he owns the past, he, he is in the present he, to bring healing, and he is the perfecter of the future that is to come in this passage. You see, Jesus is walking along with his, his apostles, and, and he says to them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be brought before these people who are going to falsely claim that I'm guilty. They're going to give me to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. And in three days, I'm going to rise again. Now, if you are hearing that, are you thinking to yourself, if you're longing for a revolution, yeah, that seems like the way to accomplish it. Well, maybe martyrdom, right? But probably not. You're thinking that doesn't seem about right. At least we would maybe have a question about it. Jesus, are you sure that's a good way to do this? But that's not what happens here. That's not the question that gets asked. What's the question that gets asked? James and John come up to Jesus after he's just predicted for the second time his death and resurrection, and they say, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. Wow! How bold! We'd like you to do, we know you just talked about your death, but we'd like you to do whatever we ask you to do. And Jesus, in his graciousness, says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Just as an aside, that has nothing to do <laughs> with Jesus being more than a revolutionary. When you think you might be praying the wrong thing, know that you're not the first person to have done that. And know that the response is not, you shouldn't have prayed that. That was the wrong thing. 
But Jesus is gracious to hear the desires of our heart, even when they are false desires, things that will bring us. And he will walk with us in them. He says to them, what is it that you want? And they say this, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other at your left hand when you come into glory. I've just told you I'm going to die. I've said that I'm going to raise again, but I doubt that you've actually heard that. And you want to sit at my right and my left hand when I come into glory, forgetting that I'm sitting next to the Father. So who's going to take God's place? Right? They want the seat of honor. They're like, look, we have... Uh, uh, hitched our wagon to this guy. We're hoping that he's going to be the revolutionary that we want him to be. And when he does, by goodness, we want to make sure we're as close to the center of power that we can be. We want to rule. We want to lead. We want power. You say you want a revolution. You want to change the world. Oh, Jesus is getting there. He looks at them and he, he says to them, okay, but can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you be baptized in the baptism that I'm going to be baptizing? Can you go through the things that I'm going to go through? I love these guys because they're like, you bet. <laughs> Think about that. You bet. We're all in, Jesus, because we know that when you get into power, when you overthrow this Roman government, when you're the one who is leading everything, then we get to sit at your right and your left hand, and we get power. We get glory. We get honor. And Jesus says to them this, and this should have freaked them out. You know what? You will be drinking from the cup that I'm drinking from, and you will be baptized in the baptism that I will walk through. Guess what? You will be going through these things, but it's not so that you can sit at my right and my left hand because it's not up to me to decide who goes on my right and left hand. That's for the people that have already been decided for. That's who God is already destined to be there. Now, you would think that the 10 who are listening to these two would in their minds think to themselves, this seems like it's not going very well. I'm glad they pushed the agenda. But instead, are they upset with Jesus? No, they're upset with the guys for having been smart enough to go ask Jesus to be at the right and the left hand. They snuck behind us. Wait a minute, that was going to be my place. Certainly, John, the beloved disciple, was going to be next to Jesus. I mean, I hang out with him the most. Right? And Jesus, knowing what's in their hearts, knowing what's being said, looks at them and tells them this. And this is where Jesus becomes more than a revolutionary. You know that those who regard you as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man, meaning me, meaning Jesus, meaning the Holy One of God, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm going going to bring a revolution to your world, but I'm not worried about the causes, although there are good causes that we need to be worried about. I'm worried about your hearts and the fact that deep down you can't get away from yourself wanting to be the center of the universe. 
And so in order to do that, I will show you the most revolutionary way to live that goes beyond anything you've ever considered is to be a servant and a slave to all. Even more so, I tell you that I, who am the Son of Man, God Most High in flesh, didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give myself as a ransom. Henry Nouwen says this, Jesus was a revolutionary who did not become an extremist since he did not offer an ideology. He offered himself. You see, the problem with revolutions and where they fall is they're an ideology, and ideologies change by whoever happens to take over the revolution. Because none of us, none of us will be of the same mind. And so when Jesus comes in to say, I'm more than a revolutionary, it's because I have come to give all of who I am to you. And that's the call for us who are in Christ, who are striving to follow this more than a revolutionary Jesus. We have to look at how do we operate our lives in a way that we are serving those that we encounter, that we give up our own desires for the desires of others, recognizing that there are times that their desires are not healthy and so we need to not give over to them directly. We need to help them sort of figure out how that can be transformed by the truth of the Spirit of God. But at the same time, we don't do it in a way that says, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. But we walk with them gently to say, let me show you the better way. Um, this week, Russ Whitfield, who's a pastor in the States, and in case you don't know, uh, in the States, my passport country, there, there's an election that's getting ready to happen. I hear more about it here than I do from people in the States, by the way. And he was on Twitter, which is where I get some of my best theological thoughts. <laughs> but Russ is a pretty amazing pastor at a church in Washington, D.C. called Mosaic. And he wrote this. Christian, follower of Jesus, those of the way, there's a difference between the expression of your faith through your culture, which is faithfulness, or the captivity of your faith to your culture, which is idolatry. How do we tell the difference? When your faith is being expressed through your culture, your culture is submitted to the authority of Scripture, the church, and the mission of God. Whenever your culture comes into conflict with Scripture, you're willing to repent, repair, and follow Christ. When your faith is expressed through your culture, you are most welcoming to and invested in your neighbors, most delighted in the diversity of the body, teachable and earnest for their gifts and contributions. And you're secure in Christ, but suspicious of your own blinders. You don't pat yourself on the back for your strong theology or any particular offering of your tribe because you're not often thinking of yourself at all. You're thinking of others. Mutual delight, indifference is a hallmark. It's Trinitarian. It's unity in diversity. Faith that is captive to culture subverts all the above. It reinterprets Scripture to justify itself. It seeks to either assimilate or dominate brothers and sisters. And it depends and it departs from the mission of God. Focusing on self-preservation. Neighbor love, on my terms, if at all, 
Cultural captivity in faith silences inconvenient parts of Scripture and fails to teach people to obey all that Jesus commanded. It's desperate, fearful, anxiously clinging to influence and grasping for control. It longs for the good old days more than of our future hope. Ask yourself this. Is my faith expressed through my culture or captive to my culture? Then ask a friend. Then ask somebody outside of your culture. No need to fear. The gospel is hope for our failures and the power of God to heal us. That's exactly what Jesus does to these guys. Is He grabs a hold of them and he says, you think you know what you're asking, but you don't. He tries to shock them by saying, can you do the things that I'm going to do? In fact, I know you will but what's your answer? And they say, yes, of course we are. And then he says, let me tell you what this means. You must serve and be a slave to all. You think through, not how do I elevate myself, but how do I elevate the cause of Christ? And in doing that, I know that I will love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I can't help but my love my neighbor as myself. Henry Nouwen says this, central to the Christian faith is the conversion of desire of the heart. One way to test the extent of our conversion is to ask, how does what we actually desire day after day align with the command to make God and God's righteousness the chief goal of our striving? If our chief goal is a cause or if our chief goal is our self, being elevated and recognized, then we miss the point of Jesus. Jesus calls us to follow his example. That's how he is more than revolutionary. And he empowers us to see it most clearly. In Philippians 2, Paul reminds us of this about Jesus. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the power of death, even death on the cross. Christ comes as more than a revolutionary and submits himself to the world to kill him so that he can save us and bring us in to a movement that is beyond anything we could ever imagine, making us whole in him. Now, that doesn't diminish our call to be part of good things. That doesn't diminish our call to say there are things in the world that are wrong that we need to be made right. But what it does is it changes our ability to know that we too are more than revolutionaries because we're not doing it to gain some advantage or because we've decided that people that disagree with us aren't people at all. It's because we're seeking God's glory and restoration and beauty to have command over all the earth. Let me pray for us. Father God, you are good and all you do is good. You are beyond compare, more than we could ever know, more than what we can even desire. And so we come to you and we ask you to break our hearts.
turn in us uh, and make us new by seeing you lifted up. You are so much more than what we could even imagine. Holy Spirit, teach us as we respond to you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond by singing together.